places today uh, in our thinking and uh, with our imaginations and some of you are going to follow along and some of you aren't going to know what I'm talking about (laughs) and I'm going to do my best to communicate to you some ideas that reach from realm to realm and we're talking about the mark of the beast and that's the uh, venue of our topic but it's not really what we're talking about because what we really want to talk about is the mark of God. And we saw already in this uh, series, and we're in uh, session 16 on this series of the mark of the beast, that there was a mark of God that was put in the foreheads of men before a particular time of destruction was to come. A time of uh, judgment, a, a time of condemnation. And uh, those are all actually the same thing. Uh, But that destruction comes in the spirit first, and then it comes in the physical reality, because the spirit is what creates the physical reality around you. And there are many spirits. There is the spirit of God, and then there are spirits of the lesser gods, the small g gods that inhabit realms, realms of the earth and realms of uh, spiritual realms, etc. And so, anyway, this mark of God is what you really want to be concerned with. Everybody's concerned with the mark of the beast. They want to know, oh, I want to know the mark of the beast. Is it a chip? Is it this? Is it that? Or what have you. They've got all kinds of stuff going floating around in people's imagination up there in their mind trying to figure this out. Now, you remember how we got in the particular predicament that we find ourselves in today is we ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And very uh, bright, very intellectual people are still eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They're trying to decide for themselves what is good and what is evil. But that's usually not enough. That's very unsatisfactory. And so what they will try to do is decide for others what is good and what is evil. And then they will try to compel them to do what is good in their minds. They will force them to march in a straight line. Goose step through the world of their own making and force you to line up according to the way that they want you to be. And, of course, they will become impatient 
and they will brutalize you. They will beat you. They will uh, eat you up in order to force you to conform to what they think is good and evil. We see a conflict in the news recently with uh, someone in uh, TV who took a particular stand in reference to the Bible, and he was set upon by uh, elements of the world that uh, want to exclude his opinion from the thought processes of the people of the world. And so there's a conflict there. But where is the real conflict? Is it in vocabulary? Is it in these uh, worded philosophies? Uh, Is it in the perception of what is right and wrong? You see, because many people read the Bible and determine what is right and wrong by their knowledge of the Bible, not by their understanding of the Spirit, that produced the Bible through men and women who were walking in the Spirit and speaking in the Spirit and living in the Spirit of Christ. And some of those people produced what we have today as the Bible. Even the Old Testament was produced by the prophets who were hearing the Spirit of God and walking in faith not in the knowledge of good and evil, but in faith, in walking with God. You see, that's where we got into troubles. We ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then we hid, and then we didn't walk with God anymore. And we even went out of the presence of God and created city-states to force people like Lamech, force people like Nimrod, to force people to do what was right. Sometimes what we force people to do was right. You know, like take care of the widows and orphans and needy of your society. That is a good thing. But if it is done by force, it is done by that other spirit. And it gives that other spirit power. And so evil can force you to do what is good, but the product will be the fruits of evil. Because it's not by faith, hope, and charity in the perfect law of liberty. It's by that other spirit that is not in favor of the perfect law of liberty. And so you will see evidence of people taking away the liberties of others, even to do what is good sometimes, although you'll often see them taking away their liberty to do what is good and making them do what is bad. But the point is is that That is where the dividing line is. Not always in what you do, but the spirit by what you do, by what, by how you act, the spirit of that gives you power to act. And so you'll find some people doing really good things, really great things, great things, saying wonderful things, and they're actually moving from another spirit. But you won't see that unless you've aligned yourself with that other spirit. I mean, that righteous spirit of God. You won't see the unrighteous. You'll see what they do, the way they dress, the way they speak. 
and you will not see the evil in them. They will fool you. They will appear as angels of light. They will appear as great men and good men, and you will follow them. By the thousands, you will follow them. And these are some of the things we're going to point out. We're going to go a lot of different places in order to show that. And uh, one of the places we're going to go is the Grace Communion International Church. Now, I'm not going to pick on them, but that, that was formerly the Worldwide Church of God, WCG. And it was an evangelical uh, Christian denomination based in Glendora, California. And uh, it was started back in 1934 under a different name, Radio Church of God or something like that, by Herbert W. Armstrong. I remember hearing Herbert W. Armstrong on the radio uh, way back when I was a small boy. And uh, it was interesting. I, I heard a voice. I heard some of the things he said. And... Uh, I didn't really know who he was or what he was about, but he was this guy on, and he was a very uh, uh, kind of almost emotional voice, you know, because he was a very dramatic speaker kind of thing and very charismatic speaker and got a lot of people's attention. But he eventually died in 1986. And as soon as he died, uh, the there were church groups uh, separating, seceding themselves, and modifying the denominational doctrines that he had once taught. And, and I don't want to pick on him because we could we could do this with a lot of different people, and uh, and we'll, we'll make reference to some of them. And usually I don't name specific people, but it's important to show how this all operates. Uh, it eventually changed its name. What was left? I don't know. You know. Of course, you have all these splinter groups coming off, so which one is the the real, original, whatever, Worldwide Church of God? And there's a number of organizations that would use that term, Church of God, because that was proclaimed that the church had to use that term, that, that phrase, in reference to them as part of the doctrine. So by that standard, the Grace Communion International separated from... Uh, Herbert W. Armstrong, and there was a lot of reasons why they they don't mind doing that because there was a lot of scandal uh, to do with the Armstrongs in this process, which he seemed like on the surface a pretty good guy. I mean, he's talking about Christ, talking about good, talking about returning to this righteousness and all these wonderful things, but in, in his private life there were some other things going on. And we see the same phenomena occurring amongst Catholic priests, uh, amongst Protestants. There was an event uh, in a local nearby town of Prineville where some minister who had been a minister for a long time, you know, Protestant minister, and everybody thought he was great and wonderful, and they'd go to his church and everything. And then they discovered that he was molesting uh, retarded children who couldn't say anything. I mean, actually very, very retarded children. And, you know, the some of the townspeople, I mean, they had to put the guy in hiding because the townspeople wanted to kind of lynch him. And uh, so you'll find this bizarre behavior of men who are supposed to be so good, talk about what is good, have thousands, in, in some cases, thousands and thousands of people following them, completely oblivious to the evil that he is doing behind the scenes. Uh, there were... There were some 42,000 uh, 
members of a group called the National Association of Evangelists, which uh, this uh, Grace Communion International is a member. And I, this, this, you can look this stuff up. It's not a secret or anything. And they're they're all over the world. There, there's about 900 different uh, congregations and about 90 different uh, countries that they represent. Well, they had a leader uh, for a short period of time, and I remember this guy hearing him talk once. Uh, but he was up in front of the news denying accusations of homosexuality and drug use, and that was Ted Haggard. And uh, he had a church uh, that had about 45, uh, let's see, the, uh, I can't remember how many people were in his church right now, but there was a lot of people in this church. But anyway, uh, he became the head of this National Association of Evangelicals, and eventually you know, he was accused of the, this activity, and then he uh, he was for, uh, you know, actively uh, promoting uh you know, uh, marriage, you know, by uh, uh, husband and wife, you know, the, the no, you know, opposing this same-sex marriage thing. And uh, he was promoting, you know, this uh, uh, reforming uh, the uh, the laws supposedly or, or emphasized actions say reform because it always was that marriage was the union of a man and a woman and then now recently it's come up that they say well no they want to have same-sex marriages and uh, so they're actually reforming or deforming this concept of marriage uh, but actually if you go back in history to the romans uh, they had a thing called uh, 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 matrimonium which was when you know the matrix of the woman was united with that of the man, and so they call it matrimony uh, because her it was her status that changed most completely when you married because she actually went from her family into another family. Her her matrix, her womb, was now incorporated. Uh, into another family by marrying an individual man, and this is what matrimonium was. And uh, but marriage was uh, from a Latin word meritatium, which was giving of this woman into the state of matrimonium, and it's it was first coined in reference to statutes that were regulating what you could do and what you couldn't do in relationship to matrimonium. And see, it always was custom that you couldn't marry slaves, you know, because that didn't make any sense. Why are you marrying a slave? And so you, a woman would have to be a free woman before you married her. And uh, you couldn't marry your sister, and you couldn't uh, marry your mother, and laws of nature said, no, you can't do these things, and they had known that for you know thousands of years. But now they were making statutes in a civil state, and remember the first civil state was created by Cain, in order to regulate that, and they were making exceptions. Uh, they were saying you could do this, and eventually marriage diem included same-sex marriages in Rome, that it was allowed, and it was terribly opposed there were laws against uh homosexuality in uh in rome it was not really against all homosexuality but you know like if you were a senator or something if you were a citizen of rome 
you couldn't be engaging in this with other citizens of Rome and still hold public life. It was frowned upon. So it wasn't like a blatant cross-the-board make it illegal, but they all knew it was simply because they hadn't got to the statute-making that eventually came about. You'll see the progression of that and things like the Justinian Codes. But the point was is that the, there's this uh, underlying principles of law and marriage or meritatium was trying to mold that according to the knowledge of men, and eventually they allowed all the things. And so anyway, Ted Hager was for, we've kind of gone off on a little bit of a rabbit trail here, but we're trying to draw a picture. He was for this natural marriage of a man and a woman. The problem was is that he was also for this natural meritatium, through the state, where it was a man and a woman in the state. So it was a three-party contract that he was promoting and trying to regulate it according to his own knowledge, and along with you know thousands and thousands of other people in, in Christian evangelicalism and whatever denomination you're in. But the reality is that very union that they were trying to mold or conform to their opinion was already molded outside of the precepts of God. And if you don't know what I mean, you need to read Holy Matrimony versus Marriage because we show you that the three-party union between a man and a woman in the state is already an unnatural relationship because the natural relationship is between a man and a woman and God. That's a free marriage. There isn't anybody who can come in and regulate that union or the products of that union. Because that union is an incorporation of man and woman under the authority of God. Remember, a corporation is two or more people gathered together for a particular purpose as if they were one person under a pre-existing authority. So holy matrimony, this holy union of the matrix of a woman, the womb of a woman with that of a man... So she becomes incorporated with that man as one person. That's holy matrimony. And to do that under the authority of God is what makes it holy and separate from all other unions. And it's sacred. You can go back to the most primitive societies there are. And there was, uh, you'll find this, you know, you'll find places where it's not this way. But you'll also find many, many places where they recognize that this union of a man and a woman as husband and wife was a sacred union and nobody could violate it. You can go to all sorts of primitive societies and that was extremely protected uh, in, in these other societies because that is the foundation of society, that union, because all society is born out of that union. But today... We have religionists defending that union that is already violated because it's not between a man and a woman. It's between man and a woman and the state, which is another corporation. They're getting married under the authority of the state, and the state can come in and say, oh, we're going to break up this marriage. We're going to break it up. We're going to divide it. We're going to divide the assets. We're going to take the children out of it because the children now belong to the state because the state is your father. They don't they don't sanction what they used to call frank marriages where this union was not going to have obligations imposed upon it by that 
entity which gave permission for the union. So they don't they don't have any knowledge of that. But anyway, it ended up that Ted Haggard was having, you know, eventually the one of the people he was having the uh, homosexual liaisons with came out and said, yeah, exposed him for what he was doing, and he denied it all and eventually contested it all. But he was the head of all these churches, these Baptist, Anglican, Assembly of God, Church of Nazarene, in this organization, National Association of Evangelicals. And nobody knew it. He seemed like such a nice guy. that Nobody detected the spirit of what was going on behind the scenes. And they didn't know it. Well, you can go back now to Herbert W. Armstrong, and his own daughter accused him of 10 years of molestation until she was old enough to escape uh, the influences and, and control of her father. And she confessed this to her brother, Ted, uh, Garner Ted Armstrong, uh, who was now being cultivated for the position of the head of the church of uh, and uh, and he threatened to destroy his father because he was so enraged at his father for this terrible, terrible act that he'd been going on. And and at the same time, Herbert W. Armstrong had uh, – his wife had died uh, some years before. He had married another woman that was 50 years younger than himself. And then when this all came out, she immediately divorced him. But uh, – so and there was a lot of other controversies. There was a guy named Rader who was uh, in there, and there was the accusations of millions of dollars – uh, being sucked away from the church uh, uh, and from a school that it created and all this stuff, and the state had to come in and, and take over the church's, uh, uh, at least through the educational system. And and then there was also the scandal of Garner Ted Armstrong, who who was accused of having adulterous affairs with literally hundreds of women. Uh, co-eds at the college and I don't know who all I don't know where you get the time to <laughs> as many adulterous affairs as he eventually was accused and claimed evidently to have done um, all this at the head of a church uh, and uh, in a church that is aligned with uh, through this other evangelical organization with everybody from Mennonites to Pentecostal to Presbyterians to the Church of the Nazarene. All these guys are in this one big tent, and these guys up at the top are doing these terrible things. Why is that? Well, why did David do these terrible things? Why did Saul do these terrible things? Why did Solomon, this wise Solomon, he did all these terrible things? And then Rehoboam, Why? Was it because they were sinners or because we were sinners? You see, we tempted them. We brought them in. All those members of the church, of these churches, while this was going on, are to blame in part. I mean, it doesn't take away from what their sin was. But they must carry a burden of that blame because they put these men up on those pedestals. They gave these men power over their minds, over their thinking. They were not led by the Holy Spirit. They did not have the eyes of Christ. They did not have the mind of Christ. They they encouraged this corruption, and you do it. And the same with the Catholic priests, same with doctors, same with all these people that you give power over you. Politicians, you give them power over you, and and you tempt them to do evil, 
You tempt them to wickedness. You tempt them to align themselves with the character of hell. And we're going to talk about how you can overcome that and be on the other side of the equation. Because all those people, all those leaders, they're over on the side of the equation. And you want to be over on that side of the equation where the mark of God will be able to be Fight the fight. We are here to equip you. Because you love the truth, LibertyRadioLive.com. The program you are listening to is 100% sponsored by you, the listener, on this First Amendment Rights Media channel. You will notice that there are few commercials on this radio network. There's a good reason for that. Corporate advertising dollars come with strings that limit program content. So without your help, these programs cannot continue on Internet or our several affiliates. <laughs> if you benefit by the educational law programs, we ask you to give. If you are admonished or nurtured by the Bible and ministry programs, we ask you to give. If some voice a cause that you are passionate about, we ask you to give. If you believe in any of these, we ask you to support them as you would a missionary on a continual basis, as if giving a tithe for Missionary Radio. These programs are not commercially viable and must be supported by those faithful to the cause of truth. Look for the button to sponsor your favorite programs at our Listen and Schedule pages on the Internet. Then, when you subscribe, we will send you the last quarterly MP3 CD of that program immediately and continue to do so with each new quarter. We will also give you unlimited archive access to all of our programs. We're asking you to give much less than a tithe so that you may also send support directly to a particular program host, cause, and anywhere else the Spirit may lead you. Do all to the glory of our God and Creator for His holy nation, the only kingdom that will last forever. Thank you for listening. Hi, Nichols here. I used to lug those big jugs to the market to fill with water from those coin-operated filter machines, 25 cents a gallon or five gallons for a buck. I used to. Then I got the big Berkey. Now I saved my back and hundreds of dollars, too. I was paying $600 for the same 3,000 gallons of water that a pair of black Berkey filters will provide from my own tap for only $99. This means that your Berkey water system will entirely pay for itself with only 1,500 gallons of use. And then you will still have 1,500 gallons left before you need to replace the filters. Do the math. Stop throwing your money away on bottled water and filter dispensers that may or may not be delivering as promised. For a limited time, First Amendment Radio is offering 10% off on the most popular Berkey water systems. Visit the shopping page at firstamendmentradio.com or call us at 559 781 
888-463-3773 for more information. Leave your name and address and we'll send you this special offer. Do it now. First Amendment Radio is an authorized distributor of Berkey product. Welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. Keys of the Kingdom. Keys. What are the keys of the kingdom? I will give unto you the keys of the kingdom. What you bind on earth is bound in heaven. What you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. This is the keys to the kingdom. If you give men power over your choices to decide good and evil for you, then you are binding yourself away from the kingdom of God. And you do this a lot of different ways. And, and we're going to see a lot of the different characters. Well, how, what keeps you from inheriting the kingdom of heaven? You see, you're giving power to men and you're corrupting them. And what was the temptations of Christ? Now, you're going to have to hold a number of balls in the air at the same time. You're going to juggle these ideas in a uniform way. What was the temptation of Christ? To turn stones into bread. What were the stones? The stones are the ministers of the altar. I mean, that's the living stones. Are you going to turn them into bread for you? I mean, Christ was the minister. The king had power over the church. He had power over the church in the wilderness. He could fire the the porters of the temple. They were appointed by him. Instead of the people electing them from the grassroots up, where ten men got together and elected their minister, that man now could join with other men like himself and form an electoral college to elect another minister. And they could form an electoral college that would elect another minister, all the way until you got up to the high priest. But this was not a position of power. This is the position of service. The highest among you would be servant to all because these leaders were titular. Very important concept. If your leaders are not titular, you do not live in a republic. You live in something else because your leaders have power. They can make a law for you. They can decide good and evil for you. Then you're not free to decide it for yourself with the help of God. Now, The fact that you can decide good and evil for yourself is not that you're free either. Because if you think you can do that without God, then you're going to be eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you see. So you have to be eating of the tree of the Spirit of God in order for that to work. And if you aren't, you're going to end up under the authority of Nimrods and Caesars and Lamechs and and Cains of the world. That's just where you're going to end up. Uh, or they will devour you and stomp you out of existence. That's just the way it is. That's the law of nature and nature's God. Because you have not aligned yourself with the nature of God, you will end up being allow, aligned with the uh, nature of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And you will be in a dog-eat-dog world, and they will devour you. This is what hell is. Hell is the realm where all the spirits that want to devour one another go. <laughs> All the lazy spirits go there, too. All the lukewarm spirits go there, too. So uh, guess what they're going to be eating? (laughs) You're on the menu. They'll be devouring you. They will be consuming you. 
and uh, and this is where you have to realize you're headed. You're headed to that realm. You know, we call it hell, and it's a hell of a place to be. Or you're headed to the other realm. So it isn't whether you have the mark of the beast, if you have a place for the mark of the beast in your heart and in your mind, because what will keep that mark out of you is that you have a place in your heart and your mind for the mark of God. And the characteristics of the mark of God are going to be separating you out from the ways of Satan and the ways of Cain. And so ministers need to realize that every minister should read the temptations of Christ and try to understand what that is, pray about that, try to understand what that is, that you will make others your bread, the other fellow members of this network of ministers, of you know, ministers electing ministers to be their servant. And the one who is elected does not want to be tempted to be put on a pedestal where he will now make his brothers, ministers, his bread. Those he serves are not to become his bread, his servants. He is to remain their servant. He is not to go up by steps because he is naked. He has no authority. He is titular. Is it now? Those of you who are familiar with biblical terms, you know, like the Levites couldn't go up by steps because they would show their nakedness. Because people think, well, they'd look up underneath their robes and see that they're naked. No, that they have no authority. And that the only authority they have has to be given to them by the people. And it tells you in the Bible that they were to weave their underwear for them, their undergarments for them. The people were to do that. In other words, and we do that. And, and, and the symbol of that is in his holy church's method of every minister that is going to serve the people must be licensed by the people they serve. I can't be your minister unless you give me permission to be your minister. Now, the ministers of the world, the ministers of the world governments in Australia or Canada or United States or England or wherever, they don't need to ask your permission. They just tell you what you got to do. They rule over you. They exercise authority one over the other. That's the way they operate. And that should be that way. And everybody who is under their authority should be under their authority because you have wanted to give power to men to exercise authority. In the church, we're a different kind of government. You give us power to exercise service. You empower us to be a servant. Now, who keeps us a servant? Who's going to keep us a servant and so that we don't begin to exercise authority? That's your job. As elders of your families, heads of your families, husbands to your matrix, to your family, you have to keep us servants. And as soon as you see us trying to get up on a pedestal or see your fellow elders putting us up on a pedestal, like, you know, Garner, Ted Armstrong and, and, uh, and, uh, Herbert W. Armstrong and Ted Haggard and the Pope, 
or I don't know, go, you know, or the AMA in America. Anytime you see us putting men up on pedestals, you remind us we should not be doing that. And and you don't want to be a, a brotherhood of pedestal pushers giving men power. Because I tell you, as soon as you start giving them power, you're going to be tempting to corrupt them. You're going to, just like David. David was a great guy. Saul was a great guy. And you tempted them by giving them power. And that's your fault. That's the part that you play in the tyranny of mankind, is you give other men power. And the reason you do that is that you have rejected God already in your heart. You call yourself a Christian. You get dunked in water. You say you love Jesus. But you go about <coughs> but you go about setting men up on pedestals, giving them power. You know, I always remember seeing an archbishop visiting, and I've told this story many times, but it, it has a visual image to me that I cannot forget. And a, a fellow student of mine ran up to him. He was probably 14 years old at the time and uh, studying to be a priest. And he ran up to this archbishop and he like slid in the first <laughs> on his knees on this smooth cement pavement. Very lightweight little guy. And uh, went to kiss his ring as they is the custom of that church. And uh, he grabbed out his hand to kiss the ring of this archbishop, and the archbishop jerked his hand away. I saw this. This was one of my Kodak moments. Jerked his hand away, and I thought, like, what's he doing? There's, there's something going on here. And he reached down, and he picked up the young man, and the man's knees were still bent. And he, he started to smile and said, straighten out your knees. Straighten out your knees. And the boy eventually did, and uh, he just shook the boy's hand. He would never let anybody kiss his ring. He had already dealt with that temptation of getting up on a pedestal and being looked up to. He was the humblest archbishop, bishop, or priest I ever saw. <laughs> and uh, and uh, he was a worker for people. He was always kind. And he had gone through uh, terrible, terrible hardships. And it had, it had changed him, all these things that changed him. And... Uh, he was probably a true servant of God. And I can tell you all kinds of other stories. Amazing individual. But that he was raised up in that church, and he, that's where he found himself. And so he was going to serve God wherever he found himself. And, and I tried to get a hold of him you know, years later, and, and nobody seemed to know who he was. <laughs> it just completely disappeared off the face of the earth. Uh, I, nobody could lead me to where he, he was located. And it's been many years now. That's been, you know, 50 years ago. And then some half a century ago. But it was interesting that he was not playing the pedestal game. He wasn't doing that. So any, if any of your churches and any of these ministers, and, and you don't even see yourself doing it, you start putting them in your mind up as some sort of, uh, you know, denominated position of authority. 
you are opening the door to hell for them and for yourself. So let's not do that. And let's check one another. Because you elders, you're key in this. Because now, and ministers too, fellow ministers are key in this too, but elders are key. The foundation of the church is Christ in the hearts and minds of the people of the church in general, which means the elders of every family, they and their wives must let the mark of God into their minds and into their hearts. This is this is key. You can't go out and join a church and then you're covered. Our church is the true church, so we're all covered. You know, the church doesn't give you covering. <laughs> you give the church covering. Uh, what authority are you following? Are you being led by? And we're going to look at a number of different uh, uh, things uh, that are in the news, and we may not get to it in this show, but we will eventually. And and somebody brought to my attention a fellow in South Africa, uh, Michael Tellinger, who's uh, found a number of interesting uh, locations throughout Africa. I mean, like thousands of them, uh, where evidently somebody had built these round structures over the centuries, and uh, he, he gets all sorts of strange readings there and all this kind of stuff. And I don't know about what all he's doing because I don't know the technicalities of what he's doing. I actually know other places that get similar readings uh, here in the United States, uh, and I won't even tell you where they are, but uh, 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 you don't see the same, uh, at least I haven't noticed uh, the same um, uh, patterns that you see from the air uh, where he is. But anyway, the uh, he also started another uh, movement in uh in uh, South Africa called the Ubuntu movement and uh and he talks about contribute uh contribute contributionism and there's an interesting thing story that came across uh my desk just recently that there is a phenomenon that has been occurring and been reported I don't know if it occurred before but where people are like giving tips of a 500 or a 1000 or even 2000 dollars uh, just for you know a meal at a restaurant, and they leave behind these huge tips, and uh, they don't know who's doing it, but there's some sort of philanthropic attitude that's kind of just popping up, like electrons and uh, cyclotrons, that nobody knows where it comes from, but it just all of a sudden uh, this generosity pops up. At the same time in the world, we have tremendous selfishness going on where people are abusing other people and, and uh, being extremely selfish and controlling. And what's happening is that there's an element of society that is being drawn towards the gates of hell, and there are elements of society that are being drawn towards the gates of heaven. And you do not want to be swept away by the current of those who are drawn towards the gates of hell. Now, how do you tell the difference? Because we just saw examples of how ministers who seem to be talking about great things, uh, wearing nice suits and ties, and you know, and you could go into other religions and they're wearing robes and they're devout men or 
there may be even impoverished men, sad dudes, uh, or in uh, I've seen in the Jewish religion where they have people who are like prophets. They think of them as prophets anyway. And they're there swaying with their prayers, and they're bouncing around, and they're they're wearing simple white robes, and you know they're and, and they're seen at the wailing wall, you know, wailing away, you know, and uh, saying their Hebrew prayers and all this stuff. And you think, well, those are devout men. They're, they're so dedicated. They've given up so much, and uh, but they are still vessels. They can be. I don't know. They, they they may be great guys. I don't know. You can't tell by the outside appearance. You can't tell by the words they say. You know, the, the devil studies the Bible. He uses the Bible more than any other book, probably. I mean, he probably uses the Bhagavad Gita, and he probably uses the life of, uh, of uh, Buddha uh, in his sayings. He uses all these things. He he is a master of knowledge. He knows his way around that tree of knowledge like you wouldn't believe. And all his minions know their way. Although most of his minions are pretty dull, but they, there's a lot of them. And they're whispering in the ears of people all the time, justifying people. And uh, I'm reminded of a saying of Albert Einstein, when a symbol unmoors itself, from what it symbolizes, it loses meaning. It becomes ineffective. It actually becomes, it can become a tool of the enemy of that original symbol. In other words, the church can become the greatest tool to destroy the church. The church appointed by Christ is a symbol of the character of Christ. But if it unmoors itself on the character of Christ, which was this character of not turning stones into bread for themselves, of not exercising authority one over the other, of not uh, forcing people to do what is right, then the church itself can become the the total church of Satan. It claims to be the church established by Christ, but is actually the synagogue of Satan, the church of Satan, which they make reference to the quotes in, in the Bible that talk about those that claim they are Jews. You see, because all the Christians, the original Christians were Jews. They were Jews serving uh what they thought was the king of the kingdom of God on earth, the kingdom of heaven on earth. They manifested that intent of service first by getting baptized at Pentecost, which caused them to be kicked out of the welfare system of Judea, where they had to gather together and take care of the needy of their society through another means, that included faith, hope, and charity and the perfect law of liberty. So they had to immediately organize themselves back the way it was originally in the tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands and begin to contribute what they had that was extra or even sometimes to go without 
you know, actually because it would uh, sometimes there were hard times and they had to go even not just give their surplus but extra sacrifice in order to take care of the needy of their society in this other form of government called the church. And the ministers they chose individually as elders, I'm going to choose this minister, and he's going to choose that minister, and somebody else is going to choose the same one I have, until we've organized ourselves into these tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands. And we're going to take care of the needy in our society through faith, hope, and charity, and the perfect law of liberty. And, and you know, I've, I've told you before, you can go back and you can read it yourself, like apologies of the early Christians explaining what they're doing, that they gather together once a week, and those that have share with those that didn't have enough. Now, these people, they they mention even in there, and this is why people go to Sabbath worship, suppose, I mean Sunday worship, is because of the fact they said they met on Sunday. And they said, well, there you go. The church was meeting on Sunday, even way back there in 150 A.D. Well, they had already had their day of rest. This is the first work day of the week. And they were meeting on Sunday to do the job. The modern church isn't doing the job. They're just flapping their gums. They're just uh, tempting you to put them up on pedestals with their churchanity religions. They're not taking care of the needy of their society through pure religion. They're not even doing religion. They turn religion into what you think about God, and they'll tell you what to think about God. That was one of the thing, characteristics of, of uh, that church, or at least the accusations against that church that we mentioned earlier, is that you could be disfellowshipped by the minister, and he had total power to do that. You could just be kicked out for whatever reason. You wouldn't even have to explain. They were they were an authoritarian group. You were answerable to your dear there those it was a church, but they weren't even titular. You can't be a minister of Christ unless you're titular. You're not coming in and dictating. You you have a right to dictate what you believe, but you don't have the right to dictate what others believe. They license you. You're naked. You have no authority as a minister of Christ over them. You have authority over your ministry. They have to decide whether or not that you're doing the will of Christ. Most people going to church don't even know what the will of Christ is. They, they, They haven't got even a clue. They don't take care of the widows and orphans and needy of their society like we see the first century church do. They go to men who exercise authority one over the other to get that done. I mean, just 200 years ago, the church was the entire social welfare of the people. It was on this note, on this characteristic of the early church, that you that you found the church being persecuted. This is why in the Apology, written by Justin, He's saying those gather together. Those who have will share with those who don't have enough. What was John the Baptist saying? If you have two coats, in other words, you, you got enough money to have two coats and your neighbor doesn't have any, you share. If you got all kinds of food and your neighbor is going hungry, you share. He's telling you how it works. Is that how it works at your church? If somebody in your church doesn't have enough, do you share? Or do you send them to men who exercise authority one over the other? You are so upside down 
there's no place in those churches for the mark of God. There is a place in the churches for the mark of the beast. Because that's the mark of the beast. If you don't have enough, you force somebody to give you more. You take a bite out of them. You take a bite out of them, you take a bite out of their children. Wow. Wow, you're a beastie. But you go to church, you love Jesus, but you're a little beastie. You're you're biting out of one another to get what you want. What where did that spirit come from? That's not from Christ. That's not from the character of Christ. No, you need to repent. What in the next show that we have, we're gonna talk about what you need to do to have the mark of God put in your forehead and in your heart. Until then may peace be upon your house and may God be with You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and we're talking about the kingdom of God, and we're in session 17 of the Mark of the Beast, and uh, I was pretty hard on some of you at the end of the last time, but you think I'm hard on you? Wait till you get to hell, (laughs) because it's full of guys who want to be hard on you. It's full of people who devour one another, and it's full of people who neglect to come to the aid of their neighbor. It's full of people who pull their shades. It's full of people who are selfish. I mean, you really want to go to that town? You know, that is where people are headed to in the next life because that's where they are today. That's where they're at right now. The mark of the beast is a spiritual mark on your hearts and on your minds. It's a mark of selfishness. It's a mark of wanting to have your neighbor devoured rather than you. You know, it's like that grenade comes into your foxhole and you grab your buddy and you throw him on the grenade. <laughs> that's, that's the character of Satan. And uh, and he will throw you. He will want you to fight to the last till all of you are dead. To give up your life for him. Because he's the the important one. And are you the important one? Is it important to you that others take care of you? 
provide for you? Are you a selfish little beastie? Or are you like Christ, willing to lay down your life for others? Are you a giver or a biter, a taker, a devourer? Would you rather eat your neighbor or give up what you're eating that your neighbor may eat? Now, when you you desire that, that, getting to that point where you're willing to sacrifice yourself or others is an absolute essential characteristic in the description of Christ. Therefore, it needs to be an essential characteristic in you in order for you to receive the mark of God. You see, because if you have that other characteristic, that mark of the beast will fit right in. You know, it's not a chip. It's a spirit. You know, I've known people who were uh, sent into hospital and they don't receive uh, uh, medicines well, you know. And you, you can actually, in this, many people have manifested this, where they'll put in the IV into their arm and it's full of toxins that they shouldn't be receiving. And their vein will push the needle out. It literally will reject the needle and push it out. And they have to try to tape it and it'll push it out again. It's like if someone, you know, I see the movies where somebody comes and they put poison in the in the little drip thing, you know, and they're going to kill the patient that way. In, if in the spiritual realm of the universe, which actually is where all the power is, you could imagine that, for one thing, the evil wouldn't even be able to go up and put the poison in unless God allowed him to do that. And the spiritual realm allowed him to do that. And then, uh, I'm, not, I'm not condemning the people that get murdered. Uh, I'm not unsympathetic. But the reality is, is that the spirit is the power. But even if it came up and put that poison into the medicine something would happen to push that needle out. Somebody would come in and physically pull pull it out, but actually the physical body would reject the needle and it would plug it off and push it out of the body. That's how powerful the spirit can be. You know, and I've seen this happen, uh, not with murderers, well, with doctors anyway, who were saying that they weren't putting certain medications in the... Uh, the drip. They were just adding, uh, you know, uh, uh, sugar water because the person was dehydrated. And they were lying. And we, we had people come to us and tell us that they were lying, that they were putting other chemicals into that drip that they said they would not put in. And they just flat out lied to us. And the needle came out <laughs> of the arm. It wouldn't go in. And, uh, and they had to keep trying and trying to put it in. And it kept coming out anyway. And uh, uh, so the the fact is is that that's how powerful, the, it, and it's a lot more powerful than that, the spiritual realm. And you are not aligned with the spiritual realm of God unless you're ministers and you have the character of Christ in you. And one of the evidences that the character of Christ is not in you is that you have ministers that are liars and, and abusers and users 
of other people. That somehow that your relationship with Christ is coming into question because you have been supporting the wrong minister. Now I'm not I'm not condemning the people, all the people that run these churches and, and you can find it in all kinds of churches, you know, where the ministers are molesting children, not just, you know, priests, but actually people who are married. Uh, you know, having adulterous relationships with a hundred women. Uh and actually the the reference was to hundreds of women and claiming to be the head of a church at the same time. It's just amazing. Like, what is going to the minds of these women? For <laughs> I guess they all thought that they were the one going, you know, having these liaisons with a married man. What are they thinking? What is going on there? And, uh, but yet that's that's how blind you can become. And so anyway, when you see that kind of corruption, you know. Now, don't just go running to another church and say, well, I'm going to go over to this church. Oh, here's another sign. Your church doesn't want you to go to any other church but its church. You know, people, I've had people ask us many times, well, if I join his holy church, can I still go to the church meetings with my local church? Absolutely. And one thing, you don't even join his holy church. We're not a corporation that you would join. I mean... The church established by Christ is the body of Christ, but we're just seeking to do the will of the Father. And we have this phrase that identifies what we're seeking to be. We're seeking to be his holy church. We can't make ourselves that with our own power. But if, if Christ lives in us, then that power will be there. We don't join some you know, initiation club, you know, I'll go get baptized and then I'll go up and do an altar call and then I'll go get a degree and then I'll and then I'll get uh, the, all the paperwork and then I'll be in the church and then I will be covered. No, you're only covered if you're covered spiritually. You can't get in any other way but to get in spiritually because I don't hold the, I'm not the keeper of the gates. You know, I'm giving you the keys, but I'm not the one who lets you in and keeps you out. I may disfellowship with you if I see you doing all kinds of bad things, but I'm not going to make you a member of the church. I may testify that I think you are, but that's my opinion. And you get two or more people that testify that they think you are, then you have evidence. You establish it. But it doesn't make it so because we could be wrong. We could be deceived. We could be deluded. But yet that's how you do it. You know, baptism was a testimony. Now, when once you – it was just a startling revelation to me, but I wasn't really all that surprised when I found out that Herod – was sending ministers out to baptize people into the kingdom of God. At the same time, John the Baptist was baptizing people into the kingdom of God. They were both out there baptizing people into the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Same thing. But their vision was different. (laughs) Uh, The guys were coming up out of the water. 
And they thought, well, well, I'm baptized. And the guy comes out of the water over here at the Jordan River, and he says, well, I'm baptized. But which one was really baptized? And he says, I'm just baptizing you with water. Don't get all carried away about that. There's one who comes after me who baptizes you with what? The Holy Spirit. You're worried about the mark of the beast? Worry about the fact that you don't have the mark of God. <laughs> Thou, why don't you? Because you haven't repented yet. That was the difference between the baptism of Herod and the baptism of John the Baptist. Between the baptism of the apostles and the baptism of Constantine. The difference was Constantine didn't require you to repent. Yeah. He didn't require you to pay. You could keep doing the same old, same old. And what was that distinction? What was that distinction? Anyway, I was going to start talking about the Michael Tellinger, but maybe we'll talk a little bit more about that distinction and we'll get back to Michael Tellinger and his Ubuntu uh, movement and some of the things. But uh, And I'll, I'll read a little bit about that when we... We come back from the break. But uh, let's look a little bit at this conflict between the Christians who were baptized by John the Baptist and the Christians who were baptized by Herod and his ministers. Because Herod, when you got baptized by him, you were guaranteed social welfare. That was your motivation. You were going to get social welfare through his system of social welfare. That was his grand scheme. He spent a lot of years building this. It was fashioned after a system that was was ancient. It goes back to Babylon. Rome was doing the same thing because, you know, Herod was kind of very Romanesque, so to speak. He was very much like what Rome was becoming. Rome had been a republic and now it was an empire. It, it was an imperial force and now the, there was someone who claimed to be the father of the nation, the Patronus, uh, and the senators all considered themselves not just old men, senators, but actually patres, fathers of the nation. And they weren't just representatives anymore. They were now lawmakers. They were actually making laws that regulated the lives of the people because the citizenry of Rome had now become enfranchised and were now quickly becoming sureties for debt. I mean, when Augustus came in, he was supplying most of the welfare out of his own pocket. But it really wasn't out of his own pocket. You have to remember, he just conquered a bunch of the richest men in in, uh, in the Roman Empire. And all their stuff was now his. He, he gets the spoils. So he had lots of stuff to give away. I mean, he, couldn't even, he was one of the richest guys around. And they had to look good, so he would give half of it all away because that had been the tradition for for centuries in Rome. That if you had you prospered, you were to give away to the needy of your society. And now they looked up to men who did that. They were very very charitable people. Those Romans, when they built their first temples, which were actually government buildings, you know, like the Temple of Saturn. Was a was a government building. One when they talk about Temple of Saturn, it, that's actually they're talking about an area. A temple isn't a building; it's an area, and in that area there'll be a lot of other buildings. 
they'll have a main temple like what we would call the Temple of Saturn, but there are other buildings that are under the coverture of the Temple of Saturn. And and this included, uh, you know, like the Temple of uh, Jupiter, which included uh, other, uh, uh, what was it? Uh, I was trying to think of the particular name of the temple, but you can actually go get pictures of them. We actually have a web page up on this on temples on, at preparingyou.com and some of the pictures of those temples. And they were, look remarkably similar to the temples that we erect today for the same purposes, which was Temple of Saturn was your Bureau of Vital Statistics. That's where your births were registered at the Temple of Saturn. And it was because there was your welfare was often administrated through the other buildings that were in that area. And, uh, and then they had a other archives of these records that they kept and they built up. But the original temples and buildings that had this public purpose, the Romans were guys who did everything. You had to have a reason. They were superstitious. Everybody's a little superstitious, but they were driven by purpose, you know, purpose-driven life. You know, they if they were going to march into Spain, they had to have a reason, you know. And it was gold. Uh, they were going to go there and mine a mountain away. And they were good at it. They could, but they had to have this purpose. So if they were building a temple. There had to be a purpose to it. And to keep track of who was who and who was born when and who had the right of inheritance of their fathers and and who was going to have right to benefits. This is what it became, right to benefits, because now their father was the state, the emperor. So when were you you're going to be eligible for those benefits. You know, when your father died or whatever, when were you going to be able, if you got injured or or, or crippled, were, was somebody going to take care of you? Well, the state was going to do it. Before, it was your family and the community that were immediately around you. When they took the focus off the family and the focus off the immediate community, they had to put it somewhere else, and they put it on the emperor and his bureaucracy. You don't know any country that's done anything like that, do you? I mean, now you guys all, if you have a problem, you go to your family, right? You know, if you want to borrow money, you you go to your church, don't you, and, and ask your other elders of the church if they help you out, you know, would you like to invest in this business? That's where you go, right? You you don't you don't go to some stranger, do you, and borrow money from strangers, you know, like, you know, loan sharks or or like banks or something stupid like that. Well, you don't do that, do you? <laughs> well, of course you do do that because you don't understand the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, if you need help, you go to church. And your brothers are there to help you because they they actually are your brothers. They actually love you. They they Their love actually extends beyond the handshake on Sunday or the Sabbath. <laughs> They actually are willing to lay down their lives for you. Is that what you got going for you? No, you don't have that going for you? Well, that's too bad. Because you're a lot like Rome was. And you're going that way. Christians, that's the way they were. They didn't go to the temple of Ephesus. As a matter of fact, they were accused of robbing it. They didn't, which was the World Bank of its day. They didn't go to the temple of Saturn or the Parthenon. You know the the temple of the Virgin. Uh, they they didn't depend on those things. They depended on the perfect law of liberty. 
and faith, hope, and charity, and taking care of one another in pure religion. Pure religion being how you take care of the needy of your society, unspotted by that constitutional order and system of government of men like Herod and men like Caesar. They didn't do this. And this was the complaint with people like uh, Celsus, uh, who was uh, writing back in the period of time of Marcus Aurelius. Marcus Aurelius is one of those emperors. Now, they had birth registration all the way back to Augustus Caesar. But Marcus Aurelius made it mandatory. Within 30 days, you had to register the birth of your child. And, of course, Christians weren't doing that because they didn't they didn't want any of those benefits from those men who exercised authority one over the other because Christ had said it wasn't to be that way with them. So they were taking care of their needy through faith, hope, and charity, and those that had shared with those that didn't have enough, which is what you see written in church literature in 150 A.D. before Marcus Aurelius to Antonius Pius, who was the emperor, who was the mentor of Marcus Aurelius, who became emperor when Marcus was a boy. He, his mentor, Antonius Pius, got a letter from Justin saying, this is how Christianity works. If we have two codes and our brother has none, we share. Those that have, share with those that don't have enough. That's that, That's Christianity. If that's not what you're doing, you're not a Christian, according to the early Christian fathers. If you're going to men who exercise authority and saying, I don't have a coat, I don't have a job, I don't have enough food, give me an EBT card, then you're like the Romans. You're like the people who bow down and serve Marcus Aurelius. So you're not going to get persecuted by Marcus Aurelius because you're not a Christian in his book. Because the Christians, they were out there doing that. You doing that? You're not doing that? Why not? Because Garner Ted Armstrong said you you didn't have to do that. Because the Pope said you didn't have to do that. Because, I, I know, I can't think of it. Because Billy Graham said you didn't have to do that you just had to believe in jesus but that's not what jesus said jesus said you had to be doers of the word and they had to do it perfectly he's, he's going to run out and meet you halfway he's going to come out and you know take up the slack but you got to be going that direction because if you're not going in that direction you haven't repented when you were baptized you just got all wet just like the baptism of constantine if you're not gathering together with a desire to lay down your life for one another and take care of one another and pledge all you have for the welfare <coughs> for the welfare of one another, then you know what are you? You're not a Christian. Celsus didn't like Christian movement because he saw the Christianity. It's privatizing of religion. What was religion at that time? Tereskia at that time? Taking care of the widows and orphans and needy of your society. At that time, Celsus saw Marcus Aurelius doing that, taking care of the needy of society through the contributions that were given to Marcus Aurelius through taxation. If you were registered, you had to pay in a tax to their temples. And you would get the benefits, but the 
this would all be regulated by men who were not titular but exercised authority one over the other. And they called that the Senate. And they would pass laws saying, oh, if, if you meet these criteria, you get welfare. If you don't, then you don't get welfare. You know, they had EBT cards back then. I just put up a web page uh, preparing you. Shows you pictures of their EBT card. <laughs> their identity marker. You know, that you you could have those little clay things, you know, and they have inscriptions on them. And they, they'd been using this for years. And you could get free bread and wine and cheese and all kinds of things if you had one of these deals. You just go up to the, the little uh, building next to the temple, and and that's where they'd hand it out on certain days. And you could get it for free. And this was given to you by the government because you were registered. He said, but Christians weren't registered. They were idiotes. I mean, real Christians who were in the Christian network. Now, the Christians, interesting about the Christians, they would help out people who weren't even in their network of Christians, who weren't in their congregations. They would help out the needy all over the place because of that good Samaritan syndrome that was just written on their hearts and on their minds. This made them very popular with a lot of people. But they also weren't paying into the fund of these temples, which was being robbed daily by these ministers of those temples who were pilfering millions of dollars out of those temples so that they would not be there for you when you needed help. Of course, modern Christians don't even know that's the purpose of the church, so they don't even know that. But they are noticing that their real church, which is usually social welfare in whatever country they're in, they're all bankrupt, and they're cutting back on benefits, and they're increasing debt. You see, because that's their real church. That's where they go. If they don't have a coat, they go to the the temples of their civil church. And they say, we don't have a job. We don't have enough food. We don't have a coat. I need a place to live. So go take from my neighbor so that I can be taken care of. I need my children educated. So take from my neighbor to educate my children. You see, you have, you you are the beasts. You're the little beasties that bow down and serve the beast nature of mankind that believes that it's okay to take from their neighbor in order to have what they want. And they say, I paid in. I paid in. We'll get to that, too. We'll talk about that eventually. And we'll show you how uh, I was going to go through an article that was on uh, Mises, or Mises, uh, who's an economist, and there's a website. And somebody wrote an article and brought it to my attention. So I thought I'd go through some of the things he said because he's, he's starting to see that this is what's happening, is that our people are beginning to wake up and realize we need to privatize charity. I mean, totally privatize it. And to do that efficiently, you have to gather together in groups and keep track of one another. The buddy system times ten. There's tens, hundreds, and thousands, ten, fifties, hundreds, and thousands we see throughout history. You have to do that. That's the only way it can be done that I've seen in history. You show me someplace that it's not done that way, I'll be, I'll be willing to look at it. But I've done a lot of study in the history, and I don't see that. They've done it any other way but that. And that's why Marcus Aurelius feared Christians. 
is because Christians were organized enough to get that done. Because if you're organized to get that done, he was always afraid that the Christians might rise up and conquer Rome because they were so darn well organized. He had to spend half his energy keeping the people in line, you know, marching in the straight line. Now, some some nations, that's really easy to get them all marching in the straight line, but uh, other people, that's really, really hard. And so it takes a lot of energy to keep, you know, you have to constantly be, you know, placating and conjoling and, and, and creating fear and, and doing all these things in order to keep people in a straight line. But the Christians just got in a straight line. And it actually wasn't all that straight, but it was working. It was kind of a circular line, a circular network. And and they were following exactly what Moses had set up. And the truth is they were doing what Abraham had done. They were gathering together and binding one another with love for one another. Oh, man, those those communities were getting so strong. It was just shocking. But then along came Septimus Severus, and he was very severe. And he persecuted Christians, and he killed Christians, and he murdered Christians. You want to know why? We actually have words from the trials of Christians as to what that dispute was. We'll talk about that when we come back. From the Lives of the Saints, Volume 7, written by Reverend Alvin Butler. Alvin was born, uh, I think, in the 1700s. Uh, This particular publication was published in 1866. And... uh, and it's, it's it should be common knowledge for every Christian because it's it's why Christians were being persecuted. And and when I just read from, uh, uh, you know, Christians were accused of being atheists. This is what, what one of the reasons they were being persecuted. And uh, the Celsus uh, was accusing them of being atheists because they had no gods over them. Now. Once you understand that this word gods in the Roman language and in the Hebrew language and in the Greek language meant ruling judges. In other words, those those black robe guys that are in courts, those were gods. They were magistrates. You can go in your strong concordance and look up Elohim and Theos, which are the Greek words and, and Hebrew words. And they were used as in deference to magistrates in courts because they are gods. And we were told not to make covenants with them and bow down and serve them. Does that mean that we can disobey everything they say? Well, no, not if we have agreements with them, not if we have been you know, brought under their power. If we are, we need to honor those agreements. 
but I tell you, if you change the spirit and nature, and those they have a service that they provide because there's a lot of wicked people out there. They're there to punish the wicked. Now, who are the wicked? Slothful. Um, those who do not love one another. That's what they're there for is to punish those wicked. And Christians were being brought before them and being tried. And uh, they, in, in some cases... They had no jurisdiction to try them, and they were always trying to get jurisdiction. When when Jesus was brought before Pontius Pilate, he was brought before one of those gods, one of those judges, and he was going to sit in the judgment seat. Only the gods, the magistrates, the ruling judges of the Roman imperial power could sit in the judgment seat of the Roman imperial power. The apotheos of Rome was the emperor, since Augustus. Usually it was the emperor who had that power. It sometimes was the Principas Civitas, which was not always the emperor. They divided it into three offices. Because, uh, but that the power of those offices, Apotheos, Apotheos, was to appoint judges throughout the empire, the imperial judges, to sit in the judgment seat to decide imperial matters, what was right and what was wrong what was good and what was evil. They were to decide that. And they were the gods of the courts. And when Pontius Pilate went to sit in the judgment seat, Jesus said, my kingdom's not of this world, this this court, this organized constitutional order and system of government. That's what he was saying. You ain't got no jurisdiction. That's what Jesus was saying. To Pontius Pilate, and Pontius Pilate said, "You know," and he and he looked at the whole case, and he knew a lot about it anyway. And he said, "You know, you, you're right. I don't. I was invited in to Judea. The Romans were invited in back in the days of Aristobulus and Hyrcanus, and they were invited by Aristobulus, but they eventually decided that Aristobulus didn't have a right to the throne." And so they went to Hyrcanus and they said, well, will you invite us in? And he said, I can't. It's against the law. I can't make treaties and leagues and covenants and with you. And they, they respected that. But the Pharisees asked them to stay and help them get rid of Aristobulus. So they didn't have any jurisdiction really over the king, but they were asked to come there to decide who was the rightful king? That's what they were asked to decide by the Pharisees back in the days of Aristobulus and Hyrcanus. And Pontius Pilate decided, Jesus Christ is king. And the Christians wanted to privatize religion. They did not want religion, the taking care of the needy of their society, to be handled by men who exercised authority one over the other. So they looked out amongst themselves and they chose men to be their ministers who were men of service, who were titular in authority, who were naked in authority, just like Moses said, to provide for the needy of their society through the perfect law of liberty by faith, hope, and charity. But the Romans had moved from that system, which they had once had in their own republic, to a system they had in the imperial Rome with all its satellite states 
that were also in this system, where they forced the contributions of the people through taxation, through membership of taxing of members, to provide for the welfare. Because then they could make everybody contribute fairly. Nobody was left behind. But unfortunately, with the consolidation of that wealth, men crept in and began to rob them in their treasury, which Christ talked about, said this was going to happen because you're not moving by the Spirit of God. You're moving by the Spirit that Samuel warned you of and the prophets warned you of. But you say, oh, we want to have a king. We want to have a ruler. We want to have somebody exercise authority. We want to have one purse, and somebody decides and controls that purse with an exercising authority to make sure my neighbor contributes enough so I can have my benefits. And that's what they wanted. But Christians were going the other way. They had repented of that. They saw that was wrong. And so Severus, Emperor Septimus, Septimius Severus had a different idea. Severus had, had come back victorious. I'll read you right out of the, the lives of the saints. Severus returned victorious from having vanquished the kings who had taken part with Niger against him. He published his cruel edicts against Christians in the year of Christ. And the year of Christ, 202, the tenth of his reign. But the general laws of the empire against foreign religions and the former edicts of several emperors against the Christians were a sufficient warrant to many governors to draw a sword against them before that time. And we find that the persecution was very hot in Africa two years before under the proconsul of Saturninus. So what was that all about? Saturninus, what was he doing? Well, uh, as as it's defined still today in the law dictionary, the church is one form of government. Uh, and it depends upon charity because that was the doctrine of Christ uh, rather than force because it, we were doing what John the Baptist and Jesus and the early church said, we were to take care of one another by charity. And there is a spirit of that growing up in, in, a, in the world today. In America, we see it, and this is what I talked about earlier. As Christians, uh, we should be doing that. Well, at that time, there was at least six uh, principles in a, a court case, uh, Sparatus and uh, Narzalus and uh, Satinus, and there were three women, Donata, Secunda, and Vestina. And uh, they were uh, being tried. Uh, they declined the proconsul's offer to them of the emperor's pardon. They were, offering, they were being offered a pardon. And there were actually many cases like this. And, and in some cases, I, I gave the example before where neighbors of Christians who loved the Christians, and were pretty decent people themselves, said, look, here, I'll pay. Here's, here's the money. I got the witness to come all the way from the government, and we'll lay the table right here. I'll, I'll put the money on the table. All you have to do is push it across the table, the altar, the table, and, uh, and they will register that you paid in to the welfare system, the Corbin of Rome, because that, that's they had Corbin too. 
and they will register that you were giving in those funds, and they won't persecute you. And they refused. No, why? Because of principle. They declined the pro-council's offer of a pardon. If they would, and this was what this was, when you laid this table out and you put this money across, and there was two witnesses there to see that you sent the money across the table to be put in the coffers of the temple to take care of the widows and needy of their society. This was called worship. This is what worship was. It's what you gave. It's how you served the gods of Rome. It was called worship. How you served the God of heaven is how you... Well, look, look at when they were in Egypt. When the Israelites were in Egypt, Moses says, I want to take these people out into the desert, into the wilderness, so they may serve God, worship God, worship God. How did they do that? By fulfilling their obligation to God and their fellow man, by taking care of one another, not by the power of the Egyptian state, forcing the contributions of the people to the point of 20%, and actually was growing greater. The burden was growing greater through crafts of state, but that's another story. But they were going to do this through free will, offerings. This is this is called worshiping. Worshiping wasn't singing. Uh, you know, God doesn't need to turn the radio on in order to, in, or listen to you sing in order to think and say that you love him. He says... Those who do the will of the Father, which is to take care of the needy, to be the social welfare of Christ through love. And they were offered a pardon if they would simply pay into this social welfare system run through temples like Saturn. And they refused. Uh, Vigilius Saturninus, Proconsul of Africa in 180 CE, addressed the seemingly anti-social behavior of the 12 uh, Sicilians, Christian martyrs, with the statement, we too are religious. And our religion is simple. We swear by the genius of our Lord, the emperor, and we apply for his benefits. They swear that they will contribute according to the statutory requirements to the temple, because we trust in the genius of our government, our emperor, to provide us with benefits. And he says, as you also ought to do. You should be paying into our system of social welfare. Run through the temples of our government, built by our government, which was public welfare. But the Christians were privatizing welfare under the authority of Christ and taking care of one another through faith, hope, and charity. And were exempt, actually excluded because Christ was king. These are the ones who say there is another king. They were taking care of one another. The true Christians like Asparatus, who was one of the twelve, would not apply to the emperor for their daily bread. They wouldn't pray to the emperor for their daily bread. They wouldn't ask for an EBT card, a Roman EBT card, a little lead coin that would allow them to go if they had needs to get free bread. They wouldn't do that. They they weren't members of that system. 
And this is the complaint. They said you should be members of this system. But they claim Christ as Lord and King of kings and ruler of all nations, and they served him. And he said, and I quote, I know not the genius of the emperor of this world, this organized system or constitutional order of men. I don't know him. I don't understand him. He didn't mean that he didn't know who he was. He didn't know who he was. But I don't have a relationship with him. But I serve the God of heaven, whom no mortal man hath ever seen or can see. I never committed any crime punishable by the laws of the state. I pay the public duties for whatever I buy. In other words, he pays the sales tax. Acknowledging the emperor for my temporal lord in the world, that he is the guy, the lawkeeper here, you know, for all those lawless, bestial people who would just actually go out and bludgeon you over the head to get what they want. But I adore none but my God, who is the king of kings and sovereign lord over all the nations of the world. He actually said this. I have been guilty of no crime and therefore cannot have incurred punishment. Why? Because he would not join that voluntary welfare system. He wouldn't swear by that. He wouldn't, you know, sign under penalty of perjury that he will be a part of that system of force. He was going to be like the early Christians said, that we gather together and those who have share with those who don't have enough. Now, most Christians today have sworn. They have bound themselves to the unrighteous mammon that takes care of its needy by force, by men who exercise authority one over the other. They call themselves benefactors, but they exercise authority one over the other. They have succumbed to the nature of the beast. Now, Many have done this because they were deceived. They didn't know better. They lacked knowledge. Yea, but for the lack of knowledge. But now you are hearing a voice in the wilderness is crying out to you. Make straight the way of the Lord. Be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. James 1.22. You need to gather together. If your church is not doing this, then yeah, you should probably leave your church. But I'm not going to tell you to leave your church. You have to lead, be led by the Holy Spirit. But you should speak up in your church. We should be taking care of the needy of our society, of our church, ourselves. They'll say immediately, oh, we can't do that. <laughs> They'll say, we can't do that. It'll cost too much. It'll bankrupt us. All things are possible with God. You can certainly start going in that direction. You're going to see the people in your church not being able to be taken care of enough. You know, there'll be people that, you know, need their firewood cut or need uh, need some extra food or need some extra care. You should be organized. That's worshiping God when you do that. He doesn't want to hear your lip service. He wants to see actual real service. Your church services should be real service, fulfilling your duty to God and your fellow man through pure religion. 
If you don't want to do that, then guess whose heart is going to be in you? Guess whose spirit is going to be guiding you? Guess whose spirit is already guiding you if you reject that idea? It's not the spirit of Christ. You have to decide what mark you want in your heart and in your mind. Is it the mark of God? The character of God? Or the character of the beast? You know, recently uh, people have gotten into trouble, like I said, in in the media because they spoke out about what it says in the Bible in in regards to homosexuality. And, oh, everybody's up in arms. Good thing they didn't put me in that magazine. (laughs) Uh, They would really be upset because I'm saying everybody who is seeking the welfare of men who exercise authority one over the other is not a Christian and not following Christ. Now, I'm not saying that you can't go collect your benefits. I'm saying you have to start turning around and looking the other way. You're certainly still going to have to pay in. Unless you want to be a minister of Christ, then you have to give up all. You know, that's what he said. And, you know, the guy says, I give 50%. Like, great. I keep all the commandments. Great. But I want to do more. He says, okay, give up everything. And come follow me and become a disciple. Disciple, a student. That's what disciple means. A student to become a minister of Christ so that he could say, I appoint unto you a kingdom as my father is appointed unto me. To be the ministers of my kingdom, you have to give up all. You ready to do that? Yeah, that's a that's a big that's a big jump. <laughs> because I see all kinds of ministers, though they were poor, they've made themselves rich in your churches. And they are not the social welfare of their churches. They are not taking care of the widows and orphans and needy of their society. Silver and gold have they none. They have plenty. They live in million dollar homes. And they claim to be ministers of Christ who said, if you want to be my ministers, you have to sell all your property. You ready to do that? Give it all up for somebody else? Can you do that? Are you willing to do that? Do you have the heart to do that? Do you have the mind of Christ to do that? Everybody didn't own all things in common, but the ministers did. And they depended upon the faith, hope, and charity of the people to provide them with the means so that they could rightly divide the bread from house to house because they couldn't go get the free bread of Rome, the free bread of Herod anymore. Because if you got the baptism of Christ, you were cast out of that system. Now, you're not to that point, but you will come to that point. You need to start turning around now and heading back So you get closer to your father's house. And you need to do that by starting to gather together and go on the record of saying, Brother, I will be a part of your congregation and help when I can. And those of you who have should share with those that don't have enough. Through your ministers of service, the titular leaders amongst you. And you must guard that you do not 
put your leaders up on pedestals. You do not give them authority over you, over your mind and over your heart. You can give them authority over what you contribute and let go of, but not over you. And if they don't do well with what they have been given by you, don't give to them anymore. But if they do well, give to them as you would give to Christ. You're... In your churches today, you are giving to men who are ministers of Satan. You have given them power and tempted them to become wicked. You are to blame. You elders of the church. You heads of households. You have not been good princes and and kings and priests of your families. You have been betting on the wrong horse. You have been looking to men who exercise authority. You know the emperors of the world, the rulers of the world, too well. Because in your heart, there has been that spirit of the beast. And not the spirit of Christ. And it's time to repent, to turn around, to go the other way. Start laying down your life for one another. And it doesn't... You gather together with anybody. You're going to get people with all kinds of religious ideas and all kinds of religious baggage and all kinds of emotional baggage and all kinds of personal intellectual baggage. Forgive them. They know not what they do. But gather together with the intent of helping one another. That spirit will filter out your congregation. That spirit of forgiveness and giving will filter your congregation and will wash you clean of your sins because Christ will have to enter into you for you to get clean. You need to submerge yourself in the flow of that water. Jordan River flowed. It flowed. And so that's, you must be baptized in that flowing water. In that flowing, giving nature of Christ to become the benefactors who do not exercise authority one over the other. That's what we need to be. We need to become greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friend. Let's do that. have been listening to the keys of the kingdom with brother gregory of his holy church for more information on the educational ministry provided by his holy church and brother gregory including services counseling lectures books and other audio materials please write to his church at summer lake box 10 summer lake oregon 97640 You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net.